Welcome to the Shell Games Podcast for the week of May 15th. This is episode number 61. Shell Games is a lighthearted look at the games of today and the ones still on the shelf. I'm your host, John, and joining me this week is the one and only, the Internet's Gailstrom, returning. How you doing, Chris? Hi, how's it going? I'm back. It's, it's been a while. It has been a while. It's been a hot minute. What's uh, what's going on with you? So, uh, I mean, not a lot, realistically. Mm. <laughs> I've just do, been doing the Twitch thing. I've been working on my voice acting a lot. Mm. Um, beyond that, just working realistically nice. that's yeah. all i really do with my time but uh for the for those curious listeners out there the reason i haven't been on the show is not because i'm mad at john it's not because oh, he, thought, he offended yeah. me i thought it's you not hated because me. i hate no i mean i do <laughs> but uh no uh i wanted to ensure that the quality of the podcast not suffer from my poor equipment so you are listening me to me now on the audio technica at 2035 <laughs> brand new brand new Actually, I got it on Thursday. Yeah. So, pretty good. Nice, I like nice. It. Yeah, because I, I know you're having a couple audio issues with, with your last microphone, so so it's good to have your, your smooth, sultry tones back on the show. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, that's good to hear. So, uh, before we jump into the show proper, Chris, um, I think what we're going to do is we're going to have an interview with my friend, uh, Zach Jurista, who is a graduate of the program that I'm actually currently uh, enrolled in right now uh, in the communications department at my university. Zach is someone I've wanted to have on the show for quite some time. He just did his thesis uh, looking at sort of uh, LGBTQ issues and queer identity in games. Um, And I've wanted to talk to him about it for a long, long time. And um, for those that listened to last week's episode, we talked about a story involving um, trans gamers who were denied access to a women's only tournament. And uh, I wanted to have someone on the show who could speak a little bit more authoritatively about that. Someone who's actually done a lot of research in this field and and um, has written about that type of thing at length. Um, so instead of making you listen to the regular show and then attaching the interview at the end, uh, if you're just here to listen to me and Zach chit chat about um, queer identity and, and gaming, uh, we'll do that right now. And you can come back and listen to uh, the regular episode and you know we'll just talk about the news of the week and perhaps some of the games that uh, Chris and I have been playing recently um, so enjoy hey there everyone it's John from Shelve Games and today we have a, a very special guest on the show someone that I've uh, known for about a year now and um, this is someone who I think can speak to uh, uh, or, or rather who has done research on an aspect of gaming that I feel we don't necessarily talk enough about on the show and that is issues revolving um, LGBTQ folks. And I'm just going to introduce him. Uh, my friend, Zach, how you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, Zach, you and I were in the same program, uh, communications, and you actually were a couple years ahead of me. So you just graduated. Congratulations. Thank you. Feels good. Yeah, I, I bet it's just this giant weight off your shoulders. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so, Zach, you actually chose to do a thesis uh, as part of our program. Um, so, so what, what, uh, what was going through your head when you're like, yeah, you know what? A thesis sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Just a masochist apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, it's, it's my strength. I I thought that it would be better for me to do academic writing, to be honest, because the other options, the practicum, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't see me going into somebody's workplace and Hey everyone, I'm going to be your, your, PR guy. No. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to read a bunch of research and write yeah. about that. Oh, sounds good. Sounds good. So, um, so you basically took like a year to do this, right? Yeah. Well, it kind of started, uh, in that course where, where you and I actually met in the video game culture, criticism and theory. 
Right, right. So that was the first time that our university was offer, offering that course. Uh, so it was pretty interesting. Um, and that's kind of, I think, where some of these uh, ideas of ours kind of got started. Like I, I started really focusing on like communication systems in like multiplayer games and how that affects our interactions online. Um, and I, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think you were talking about like um, identity in games like Dragon Age or am I mistaken? Yeah. Exactly. Specifically about Dragon Age. Uh, okay. It was about, it was just like a small research paper, but it was about um, the evolving queer representation in the series. Mm-hmm. How it kind of changed from a, sort of like a one-dimensional, slightly stereotypical uh, kind of viewpoint at the beginning to uh, the most recent title being a lot more nuanced, mm-hmm. kind of representing the reality of queer experience. Yeah, it's changed. Okay, so, so that's, uh, that's really interesting stuff. And uh, again, it's probably something that um, a lot of people... In I, I don't know how I want to phrase this, but like the, the average person who plays games might not necessarily think about right. Uh, whereas this is something that's that's become uh, more of an interest, at least in like um, academic circles as of late. Yeah, it's growing definitely. Like mm-hmm. uh, there's like this whole developing field of queer game studies, but um, it just in general, game studies overall is still like really underrepresented and one of the things that i really inspired me to take on like a thesis like this is how you know video games aren't sort of given the same level of respect as other media when it comes to academics like you know film and and television have whole programs developed around them they get all the research glory and uh video games are still sort of fighting for a spot on the stage yeah absolutely um i I think i might have mentioned it to you but i'm actually heading to to a conference in uh, toronto uh one that you attended last year i believe Exactly. Yeah. No, I got to attend the the gaming panel at uh, the Communications Association, whatever. I right. forget already. Right. Yeah. Congress. I call it yeah. Congress. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I'm looking forward to that because the uh, there's there's gonna be a ton of gaming stuff that uh, I've I've kind of seen the rough outline of the panels that they're gonna be uh, presenting and I'm just I'm so excited to, to to just sit there and listen to all these people that are much smarter than I am talk about video games. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely remember the the feeling of that and there's so much going on in game studies that I never even thought about like mm-hmm. just sitting through the panels is so eye opening. Um, so let's talk about perhaps uh, maybe your history with games before we get into the meat and potatoes of this. So. What was your or what were your experiences like as someone who enjoyed games growing up? Like, what were you playing? Um, You know, (laughs) where were you playing? What systems were you playing in the arcades? Like, just tell me your history. I was uh, definitely and maybe to some degree still am like a huge Nintendo fanboy. Yeah, I mean, it's just the truth. It was the (laughs) Super NES, I guess. And then it was the N64. And then the GameCube was really my thing as a teenager. Yeah. Okay. So like. Pokemon, Mario, Smash Brothers, Resident Evil, Metroid, mm-hmm. um, Animal Crossing, Sonic, stuff like that. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. I did branch out a little more as an adult, but yeah, yeah. I've, I've owned so many more Nintendo systems than anything else over okay. my lifetime. So that's really cool. So I guess let's talk about sort of where your research started. And we mentioned Dragon Age. So was it that game specifically that got you sort of thinking along this line that, that your thesis developed? Um, or, or were there other titles that you might have been looking at at the same time? Um, yeah, well, it's hard to kind of look at Dragon Age from an academic perspective without acknowledging some of the other titles that are uh, kind of similar that have come before, like Fable, mm-hmm. um, uh, Elder Scrolls, uh, you know, those, those games that sort of had the, the romantic side plot that yeah. sort of brought sexuality into the experience of the game mm-hmm. uh, in, as far as the story. But yeah, Dragon Age definitely is what kind of sparked this idea because they really went for it in a way that other titles hadn't. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm thinking a little bit about uh, another you know massively popular Bioware title, and that is Mass Effect. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes people say like, "Oh, Dragon Age is their fantasy thing, and Mass Effect is their sci-fi thing," but they're very much yeah. th- the same game. Um, did you look at Mass Effect stuff at all? You know, I've actually just never really gotten into Mass Effect. <laughs> the, I'm a lot more swords and spells than like uh, laser guns. Right. Um, but I played uh, one or two uh, titles just kind of casually, but it just never really stuck out to me when it came to the research. Uh, they were a little bit further behind when it came to the queer representation, too. Um, yeah. So it just didn't really make it into any of the projects that I ended up working on right. over the last year. Yeah, because um, that's what I've heard as well, is that, you know, Mass Effect, you know, did try to, like, branch out a little bit, but they probably um, didn't take as many risks as at least, you know, some of the later Dragon Age titles. Definitely. And while Dragon Age has been con- just um, each consecutive title has been better and better when it comes to this kind of thing. Uh, apparently the last one, uh, Andromeda, sort of took a step back. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've uh, heard just a lot of mixed things. Yeah. I never played it, but I've been following it online. Like people seem, uh, yeah, perturbed. <laughs> that's that's uh, a euphemism, I think, for when it comes to people on the Internet <laughs> being upset about something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, your actual thesis. Again, this is a year's worth of, of your life's work, I guess. Um, <laughs> so what were some of your your main ideas going into this? And what were some of the main themes uh, of your research? It was, it was an autoethnography, which right. is sort of... Uh, examining your own life through an academic lens is like a cultural critique um so it's using your yourself as data which was really personal and vulnerable Mm but kind of lets you play with academic theory in a way that you couldn't in other ways Mm -hmm. Uh, so basically i wanted to explore my own relationship with gaming and like you know things like like certain things like um what am i trying to say here how you know gaming becomes a label that you use to identify like mm-hmm. i'm a gamer but you know it doesn't work that way with other media right. like television film and stuff so i kind of wanted to explore um the intersection of gaming and like my own identity as a gay man and like what this means for my relationship with like the medium and with right, other people right. and uh you know how it affects your lived experience okay yeah i, I always found the the label gamer a little bit odd um <laughs> yeah. you know again like you don't because you like movies, you don't call yourself like a, a filmer or you know, right? something like that. It's it's a little bit odd. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I wanted to kind of get into that and be like, why is it? What is the reason that we say this? And and for me, even just like the whole gamer with a Y sort of mm-hmm. label, it's this whole other level. And like, why do we feel the need to uh, have this relationship with a medium um, where others, it doesn't work that way? Okay. Okay. So how did your sort of analysis of your own life uh, translate into the research you were looking at and how did that sort of direct your your path in, in, in your writing and your research? Research that exists out there about like queer game communities was not entirely lining up with my own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is there was just so little of it out there. There's like four or five studies that look specifically at gamers and very few from like an insider's perspective of someone who actually is a gamer themselves. So I just wanted to kind of contribute my own voice to it. And um, that was really what was tough about it was kind of getting in touch with your own voice as far as academic writing and uh, getting there with the personal self data. (laughs) That's what ended up directing me to dig deeper into the experience and kind of figure out how gaming has influenced my life and uh, other certain things like homophobia in gaming and Mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah, um, I, I've definitely uh, tried autoethnographies for some of the smaller papers that I've written, 
And it's very difficult, you know, because, because any more than you expect. Yeah. Being in university, you're kind of trained to write a certain way and you use research and other people's work in a certain way to conduct or construct an argument and then, you know, present Mm -hmm. it with, with uh, evidence and that sort of thing. So inserting yourself into all of that seems like very, very alien almost. Absolutely. And you can't stop like using other people's words and doing the whole academic thing. But then you also got to like tell your story from a personal way that that sounds, you know. (laughs) relaxed and not like so detached from your own life. So it was way more difficult than I expected yeah. it to be. And I, I almost gave up several times, but I, I just kept going with it. And I didn't want to waste all that time, <laughs> start over from square one. I was like, that's not happening. So uh, <laughs> for sure, I'm really happy. I ended up sticking with it though, because yeah. it ended up a really meaningful project in the end. And I mean, uh, I, not to brag, I actually ended up winning the medal though for it, uh, best in the program or whatever. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that on Facebook. So again, congratulations for, for that. Yeah. It's a huge accomplishment. And I think uh, obviously the proof is in the pudding. So can you <laughs> kind of break down or perhaps give us like the, you know, the Coles notes on, you know, what your thesis was, like some of your like big main points, what you were hitting on and, you know, uh, again, was it issues to that just relate to uh, queer identity in games, or uh, again, like you mentioned, homophobia. So, so what were some of the main things that, that you kind of hit on and, and found? Yeah. So the main point, uh, at the beginning was kind of like, what, what is this like gamer with a Y identity? Why, why do we do this? And I found that it was a lot about like the hybridity of, um, like they call it the third space, right? And it's mm-hmm. not one thing or the other. It's this something that grows out of that intersection. Uh, so finding out that like people, relate to gaming in different ways uh as queer individuals and uh figuring out their own relationship with the the media and how that can uh affect your life and i ended up digging into the things that it's done for me like how it helped me normalize kind of my own same-sex attraction as a teenager like i wasn't really relating to the gay man that i saw on tv but in games you know i can i can mold these characters to be the way that i want to be and you can do whatever you want to do and that was so much easier to see yourself in it and you know as a young queer uh teenager like seeing yourself in the media that you care about is so important and uh, meaningful and so that's that's where I found it. And I got to write about that. Right. Absolutely. And I guess that idea of, of being able to sort of self-identify with, with the, the media that, that we consume is obviously really important and really critical to our own development. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. so again, it's hard for me to, to, to sort of speak to that because most media is constructed with, with me as the audience in mind, right? I'm, I'm a, I'm a white hetero cis dude. I'm, absolutely, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm like, you know, people often, uh, refer to that as like quote normal or as like, yeah, like template, the default right? audience. The default, I think that, I that's the word yeah. I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, did you find, do you think that games are doing enough to help people uh, identify with the protagonists that they're playing or perhaps with the stories that they're consuming in games? Not enough. No. I mean, they're doing a little bit, but um, I mean, people, yeah, people often argue that games only reflect like that straight white male perspective, but you know, the reality of the gaming audience is that it includes so many diverse perspectives. Uh, right. One of the, the statistics I came across was that there was, in 2015, a reported 1.8 billion, like, people who played video games, or, you know, not necessarily gamers if they choose that label, but, like, almost 2 billion people in the world that, that are playing games out there. So these are varieties of, you know, nationalities, races, languages, genders, uh people play games that are not just straight white males. And Mm -hmm. so I think that reaching out to demographics like this, uh, like reaching out to them as gamers could really help normalize those perspectives that are, you know, so often marginalized in the medium. Um, but really what needs to happen 
for that to happen is that they need to be involved in the game making process. It's the mm-hmm. developers that need to become more diverse first because people make games and they make films and they make television that comes from the perspective that they see, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think we're kind of getting there, but it, but it's very much moving at this glacial pace. Um, mm. I, I'm thinking back to one of this last year's sort of um, critical darlings, and that was uh, Mafia 3, which was about a, um, uh, a man, you know, c- coming back to his hometown in, it was like a New Orleans sort of-esque city. Um, but he come, comes home after the Vietnam War and, you know, he, he's a black man in, in that city and dealing with racial discrimination and trying to get back at the mafiosos that did him wrong. Uh, but that yeah. story, story was written by a black writer, you know, and and, and again, I, I think to your point, it's important that you have these diverse people in these um, uh, creative uh, jobs so that mm-hmm. we can see those stories reflected Exactly. I mean, that's the stories that like, I think people want to see too, is that, you know, you hear so many people complaining, not just in video games, but in all media about how stories are so often regurgitated and similar and, you know, pushing boundaries and telling stories that haven't been told um, is so important for just create, you know, creativity in general. I want to see stories like that from perspectives that haven't necessarily been represented before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, So so what what were some of the other big points that you kind of hit on? Uh, One of the crazy things that I ended up finding out what about was, uh, it was like homophobia in gaming. I wanted to look at that because, you right. know, you hear about it all the time, uh, at least in the literature, it's always, uh, talking about how these homophobic environments, the heteronormativity of the industry and uh, the heteronormativity part I get, but the homophobia part, I was trying to think back to an experience that I had of encountering homophobia in gaming and so that I could write about it in my autoethnography, but I was actually having a kind of a hard time. And I realized that I couldn't really think of any specific that had ever happened to me mm-hmm. um and i was like well, well what is this like what's wrong why is there this disconnect where in the, in the literature it's so salient but in my own like experience i can't come up with any examples and then i came across this quote that was saying how you know queer gamers often carefully curate the media environment like who they play with where they play and that sort of unlocked this idea in my head it was like oh my god like that's what it is i haven't encountered homophobia in gaming because i've actually been like unconsciously avoiding it okay for years right like i didn't play online i don't play online games because i right. guess i kind of know how people talk that was good, that was gonna be my next question i was like how many yeah. online games have you been playing <laughs> right i know and i didn't even in, in like middle school high school age like i never played with like guys like i did when i was a kid because i kind of knew the environment that it was you know throwing around gay and bag and pussy and words like that and right. i was like well i'm like even not i'm not even gonna bother mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it was kind of a shock to me to realize that i was changing the way i in- enjoyed my own favorite hobby like in response homophobia before it actually even happened right it's like sort of a self-imposed isolation it was yeah but but at the same time i feel like that's i feel like that's almost like a tragedy that that people have to sort of self-curate their environments uh to to prevent you know this this type of of, of harassment or um you know homophobia or anything like that that, that it's it's it seems like a big problem if people have to disconnect from certain um, games or certain experiences or certain communities because uh, whether it's conscious or, or, or subconscious, you know, they, they realize, oh, that's not a safe, safe you know, place for me to be. Yeah, well, it's something, you know, queer communities have dealt with for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess maybe video games and online environments sort of the next frontier of that. Uh, right. But, you know, they'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, what else were you kind of looking at in this thesis? 
don't know. One thing I thought was really interesting was kind of the history of the term gamer with a Y, like gay gamers. Right. Uh, I had no idea that it ha- it was actually uh, kind of under dispute for a while. There was a bit of a legal battle around it. Oh, really? Uh, apparently, yeah, right? I had no idea. You would think that it's such a, a regular word. How could you? like trademark it, but apparently someone did try to do this, uh, <laughs> in the like mid two thousands. And it was actually a Reddit, a subreddit, our gamers with a Y that actually fought them in court using pro bono lawyers who were working for them and found examples of the term being used as far back as like 1991 and okay. got the trademark revoked. Oh, wow. And yeah, basically reclaimed that term as, you know, a symbol of, of a community. Uh, so I don't know. I, that was something I didn't know before going into it. It's a term that I used myself and I didn't even know the history of it. So that was right. something I definitely thought was really interesting in my research. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I imagine like, again, we were kind of talking about how like a lot of this research and, and a lot of this discussion is only kind of happening now or in the last few years. But obviously, you know, it's not like gay people just sprung up like overnight. You know, this is, these are people who have been experiencing these games and these communities for, you know, since games existed. So it's, yeah, it's interesting to see, um, I guess some of the subculture that, that sort of uh, evolves around it and, and how that's um, manifesting nowadays. Yeah, definitely. And you get to see a lot of interesting, um, an interesting kind of boundary pushing from queer gamers and queer game developers, too. And you might even see something like this if you attend Congress in the summer. But mm. uh, there's a lot happening on like the indie game front, apparently, for the kind of content that people wish that they would see from AAA titles, but they don't. So they make it themselves. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on. Yeah, I actually recently, I can't remember if I talked about this on the podcast before. I actually recently played a game um, called One Night Stand. And it was, you know, a very simple sort of point-and-click adventure-style game um, that had you waking up after a one-night stand, apparently. And you sort of have to explore the room to figure out as much as you can about (laughs) uh, the person that, that you had just slept with. And then they kind of come in and you have these awkward conversations. And based on you know, the, the dialogue choices that you make and, and what have you, or the information that you're able to discover, you might get more information out of this person, or they might kind of shut you down. And it was really, really interesting because, you know, in most games they are just like, Oh, you as the player have power. And like, if you get enough information, if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll be able to get the good ending, get the best ending. Yeah, and and this is a really short game. Like I, I could probably you could probably play through it in fifteen to twenty minutes. I tried going through a few times, and I realized, oh, this is this is this is a person. This is a person like with their own, um, you know, uh, driving ideas, and and they have their their own free or not. They, I don't want to say they have their own free will, but like they are not there to serve the player. And it was really yeah. refreshing because you know you I would try and be nice, and they'd just be like, well maybe we should just go our separate ways or like yeah, they got or, their own reasons. Yeah, you don't exactly. Even know. Or, or yeah. They'd, they'd give you the very like, like gentle sort of like, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll call you sometime <laughs> and kind of <laughs> usher you. I, I want to see this. Stuff. Uh, yeah. And they'll just like usher you out the door. But, but again, it's, it's interesting that, that you mentioned that like these indie devs are now starting to create these experiences that you, that probably big publishers would be a little bit um, risk averse to put out there themselves. Definitely. And that's something that came up in my research, too, is the whole risk aversion of making like queer positive titles, because there's still this idea that gamers are a certain kind of person and they don't want to see that or they don't want to play that. And even when queer content is included in games, it's so often hid behind like what they call the the, the gay button. One researcher did where it's like you got to 
access it on purpose to find it. It doesn't just okay. come up. Right. right. Um, but it's sort of starting to move away from that. Like um, one of the examples from Dragon Age is like the whole Dorian storyline is like this one gay character that you eventually find out that he's gay no matter what. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to specifically romance him to get that information, which is sort of a step forward, uh, moving um, away from the gay button. Right. And, and again, I'm thinking back to Mass Effect. And, and I think one of the characters there, uh, I believe it's, it was Caden Alenko, who, again, like you said, you don't find out that they're gay unless you as a male protagonist try and romance them. Exactly. That was even a different example was the someone like Caden and in, in a bunch of Bioware titles uh, from the past, these people, these characters would be kind of malleable, like their sexuality would change based on you as yes. a player. Yes. Yeah. They were straight if you were a woman or they were gay if you were a woman, like depending on like who you were talking to. Right. Right. And um, at the time, you know, when I was playing it, I liked it. Uh, to mm. be honest, I didn't have anything negative to say about this kind of thing until I started looking into the research and then when I read about it a little more, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I can see how that does sort of like erase queer identities and make it like just a default mirror of the of the heterosexuality with like no consequences and no um, no like acknowledgement of like the reality of what uh, being queer is like. Right. But yeah. So from an academic perspective, I'm like, yes, yes. Cr- critiquing this. But <laughs> from a player's perspective, I was like, oh, cool. Like I can be gay in this game. <laughs> I want to. Yeah. 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 Uh, again, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, you can kind of see developers being like, oh, Hey, we should probably try and include this so that we can, you know, try to be inclusive. But at the same time, like you said, as, as, as a, an academic or a critic, you can look at that and just be like, well, you're not really doing enough now, are you? Right. Yeah. No, studying games ruins them completely for you. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, so were there any other sort of big points from your, from your uh, work that you kind of wanted to hit on? Uh, no, I think you kind of just brought those two last two out of me there. That was okay. perfect. Okay. Awesome. Um, so wrapping everything up, what were some of like the big conclusions that you came to in, in your thesis? How did you... How did your year looking at, you know, LGBTQ issues in games, how did that affect you and what did you come up with in the end? Basically, I think what I said is, you know, I just realized that uh, my relationship with games uh, as a queer person is kind of shaped by a variety of different factors that I never really saw until I sort of started to do that autoethnography and look into my own experience. So it was really eye-opening for my own experience as a queer gamer. Mm -hmm. And um, in the end, it just kind of leaves me hopeful for the future because like I know what games did for me uh as you know a young gay guy as a teenager uh they were really helpful in normalizing my own identity and stuff and I know that they can continue to do that for generations of people and in even better ways than than what I got to experience so Mm -hmm. I hope that all the things that we need to see going forward in game development happen like more diversity more people of color more women more you know, gender fluid people, more queer people. I want to see like uh, that represented not only in the texts, but in the developers themselves. I think it could, uh, you know, cause a lot of queer potential of video games to come to fruition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I struggle with uh, in, in, in games is, is the fact that it's just also bland. You know, we, we have these stories that are just, you know, carbon copies of something that we've seen a thousand times you just have these sequels that are regurgitated, people playing it safe and just, you know, not willing to take these risks. And uh, I would love to see, like you said, more people of diverse backgrounds in these uh, positions, creating games and telling new and interesting stories, you know, stuff that we haven't seen before and like challenging the medium 
to push forward and grow. Absolutely. Because, you know, the audience wants that. And it's not just even about diverse perspectives. That's a huge part of it. But just even new stories, new things that that could be there, uh, it's being held back, right, by risk-averse companies. And I think they need to wake up to the uh, realization that, like, people want to see different things. There's there's so much untapped potential. So last week on the show, we touched on this story for those that didn't uh, didn't get a chance to listen to that one, uh, basically it was it was about a team of uh, trans uh, Counter Strike Go players, um, trans women who wanted to register for a tournament in Germany um, that was uh, sort of a subsidiary tournament of the esports league, um, and they were sort of re- refused entry. And we, we talked about that on the show. I was <laughs> I was actually hoping to have a couple other people on the show, but unfortunately, just the the hosts that could make it all ended up being cis dudes, and I was just like, ah, oh, this is this is not the best way to have this conversation. But uh, so so I thought I would bring this story up again uh, while I was talking to you, Zach, because obviously, like we just said, you spent a year looking at some of these issues, um, and in in the interim, it turns out that that story was in fact a hoax. Um, so the the players involved um, were not trans whatsoever, and they were just trying to. Uh, get, I guess, like a fake story published on, on uh, BuzzFeed and some of these uh, other sites that picked it up. Um, and they, uh, we, we found this out uh, from a story that was uh, published on Infowars, which uh, I, <laughs> I, I, for those that don't know, I guess Infowars, how would you describe it? It's sort of like a conspiracy theory, very far right leaning yeah. news, uh, news site. That's about right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Zach, did you have do you have a chance to to take a look at this like the original story, um, and sort of you know the aftermath after we found out it, it was a hoax and that yeah. sort of thing? And, and what were some of your thoughts? Because originally it seemed like oh it, this is this is an issue of these trans women not being allowed into a women's only tournament. That was sort of the crux mm-hmm. of it, and it, it kind of got a lot of people talking about like oh well we should really think about this. Like what rules are in place to prevent people from um, registering for tournaments that shouldn't be a part of those tournaments. Like, like these women's only tournaments are set up as sort of like a, a space where women can come together and sort of celebrate their love for a game without, I guess, fear of harassment or, or anything like that. Um, yeah. And so, so what did you think about all of that? I think that, you know, it's definitely... It did turn out to be a hoax, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of weird problematic things going on there, but uh, it's it's brought up a lot of really important issues like inadvertently so that's yes, yes. cool i, I guess the, 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 the one positive yeah the one positive is it it brought up these like uh, blind spots in some of the guidelines yeah. set by the esl asking like yeah what should, what are we doing for this and should we be doing anything what needs to be done like let's actually ask some real trans women and see how they feel about it as mm-hmm. gamers yeah. um but yeah it was a, it was a weird for sure um to be honest though my perspective on it i it wasn't the hoaxers that were really bothering me. Like, I, it's not, I guess, surprising to me that people are out there kind of like making fun or mocking like the queer experience. And, and like, I don't know, that doesn't surprise me that that happened. Right. It's ridiculous and it's immature and sensitive and whatever and that. But what was really the issue for me was that BuzzFeed wrote it without 
researching them at all. Yeah. That was what was shocking to me. Like as I mean, you too as a communications major, right? I'm like, you do not write a story <laughs> without even Googling the name of the people that you're writing about. It's just yeah. totally ridiculous. And to me, it felt kind of like BuzzFeed is jumping all over this ex- this story, like almost for profit. You know, it's like mm. it's clickbait. You know, they're going to get a lot of clicks from this and sell advertising dollars. And for me, it was sort of insulting because like the queer community's struggle for equal rights and like the, the adversity that, that we face is not – it's not for profit, not yeah. for straight people's profit at at uh, BuzzFeed or or, or yeah, anywhere for sure. And I I felt bad after because I think I I hit publish on the podcast and then like literally a day or two later it was just like hoax. <laughs> I was like oh god damn it. And, and again, like you said, like as someone who's usually pretty careful about the stuff that that the the, the, the sources that I use. Um, but again, it was it was BuzzFeed News. It was a couple other big gaming websites whose yeah, right. reporters I, I generally trust, and and they all kind of picked this story up. Um, so yeah, I can definitely agree. It, it was problematic that the the people who wrote about it probably should have been a little bit more diligent in their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it, it's it's just kind of unfortunate that it, that it got published in the first place. Yeah, but you know what? Maybe not unfortunate after all, because I do like the conversations that are coming out of it now. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I didn't even know that there was women-only gaming tournaments mm-hmm. until this story broke. And I, I'm kind of seeing the need for them too, especially in all the research that I that I did about how certain gamers can be quite marginalized within traditional gaming communities. So it makes me happy to see that uh, things are being done to broaden the definition of gamer overall. Yeah. So, so again, like, like we said, there, there was some positives that kind of spun out of this, that DSL is sort of thinking, oh, yes, you know, our policies worked because we did catch people who were not supposed to be a part of this tournament, but mm-hmm. it brought to light some glaring omissions uh, or, or some problem areas that we need to work on. Um, so I'm just going to very quickly read a, a quote that they released after this all came to light. Um, so from the ESL, quote, we're relieved to see that no legitimate competitors in this third-party event were barred from participating, and we deeply condemn the behavior exhibited by the team in question. Despite the fact that the ESL policy worked and has prevented trolls from signing up and playing in the tournament, this incident did highlight that our process is imperfect. It could just as easily have unnecessarily impacted a team that was genuinely trying to compete. There's always a balance of sanctity of a tournament and erecting too many barriers to competition, which we're currently uh, revisiting internally. Um, so what do, you, what do you think about that and their, their response to this? That's fantastic. That seems like a really good response to what happened. Um, so yeah, I mean, I applaud them. I don't know who they are. SLA, <laughs> uh, the ESLE is, is basically the eSports League. Um, they're one of many, I guess, larger organizations within uh, the eSports community. All right. Well, then that's great. I mean, I hope people follow that example because that's true. Everything they said is true. They, they need to do more to see who's being excluded. But it's fantastic that they are stopping the trolls at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ugh, I hate the word trolls because I always think it's it's too <laughs> soft. It's like a euphemism for, for what right. a lot of those yeah, people are doing. True. Right. Yeah. Bigots. <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that was kind of what I wanted to talk about with you today, Zach, um, I don't know. Are there any, from, from the discussion that we've had here, it, it sounds like the, the gaming community and developers and publishers have a lot of work to do. Uh, do you think that there are any serious, um, issues with regard to, you know, career identity and just LGBTQ folks within the gaming space that, that really need to be worked on in the coming days? Like if you, were president of the world and you were just like, we're going to fix games. Uh, <laughs> how would you do that in like in the coming days? 
Okay, well, that's that's a lot of pressure pressing into the world, uh, <laughs> and I think I might end up going kind of totalitarian on everybody. Yeah. So I might not take that exact yeah. uh, metaphor. But what I want to see happening in in games is is more diversity in the people who make them. That's absolutely the first thing that we can start to do, and it is sort of starting, um, but it needs to happen on a grander scale and. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what's going to unlock the potential of games to tell these stories that haven't been told before. More women in game development, not just the tournaments, right? More people yeah. of color, more trans people, queer people, you know, let anyone make games who wants to. And with the technology that we have nowadays, we're headed towards that. So mm. I think that we're, we're well on our way, but it, the conversation still needs to keep happening. I, I wish I was smart enough to say it as well as you did, but uh, that's why I brought you on the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so again, thank you very much, Zach, for uh, joining us. Again, huge congratulations on uh, completing your thesis, the award that you got, graduating, uh, and moving thank on, you. moving on to bigger and better things in the wider world. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me. It was re- it was a blast. Okay, so uh, a big thank you once again to my friend Zach for coming on the show and chatting with me. And uh, I really, really hope that we can have him back at some point because uh, I really enjoyed that conversation with him. Um, so, Chris, you ready for the news? I'm so ready for the news right now. (laughs) So, Chris, I don't know what your experience has been with uh, GameStops. Uh, I don't know. Did did they ever have EB Games down in the U.S.? Yeah, EB Games was pretty popular until GameStop literally bought them all out. Right. We we still have a few of those here in Canada. You know, I I understand people like being able to trade in games because, you know, sometimes money might be tight and you want to stay up to date on, on the newest stuff that's coming out. But one thing I've never done, Chris is traded in a game and gotten a used copy and gotten some free drugs with it. I mean, is, isn't that just like the best case scenario? <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> there's a recent case of a uh, 11-year-old in Havana, Florida, who got a used copy of Grand Theft Auto V. And as the game was installing, they were flipping through the manual to kill some time. And out pops a little baggie of crystal methamphetamine. <laughs> um, so, so uh, uh, thankfully, uh, this young guy brought the uh, brought the meth to their parents and said, "Hey, what's this?" And they called the police, and the police tested it, and yep, sure as sure as heck, it was meth. Uh, so this comes from uh, Kayla McAllister, uh, the mother of the kid in question, and she she wrote about the incident on Facebook. And some people kind of thought she was actually copying a story. Because this happened uh, back in September in Louisiana. So this is the second kid who's found meth in a copy of a game that they purchased from GameStop, Chris. And um, I, I don't know. What do you, what we, like, I included this story today because it's just like really quirky and weird. I mean, it's terrible. Like I would never <gasps> want this to happen to my kids because it's super dangerous. Like if it was like a... a, a Uh, I think the mother even mentions at one point, like, if my daughter had been in the room and was tearing apart the game, like, who knows what would have happened. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) what do you think about all this? So, A, drugs are bad. Yes. I do not wish any child to be subjected to drugs, specifically methamphetamines. But on the other hand, that's funny as shit. (laughs) Considering the subject matter, all right? It was Grand Theft Auto and the kid found drugs in his copy of a game where drugs play a pretty heavy role. Yeah. That's kind of funny. But, <laughs> it's kind of ironic, but seriously, yeah. Seriously, it's it's bad time. Kids, don't do drugs. Yeah. Okay? 
Okay. Um, so well, GameStop, it's kind of funny. It is kind of funny. So GameStop put out a uh, statement after the incident. Um, they said, quote, we are disappointed to hear about the experience one of our customers recently had when purchasing a pre-owned video game from one of our local Tallahassee, Florida stores. We work diligently to ensure the quality of our pre-owned items are like new. Unfortunately, in this circumstance, our thorough process fell short. We are extremely concerned that this incident occurred and are working with local police department to support them in their investigation. You know, whatever. That's a, that's something that a company has to say after something yeah. like this happens. Um, and it's also kind of strange that, you know, the, these these two incidences occurred because GameStop has a massive facility in Texas where all their used games go. They get uh, they get sort of refurbished. They get cleaned. Uh, they get put into, you know, the appropriate cases with manuals, etc., and you know, more often than not, things are in good condition. And some, sometimes they have to insert new uh, slips for the covers and things like that. But I just – I remember reading an article about this on IGN like years ago. And it was a big sort of feature. Um, I think it was Colin Campbell who wrote it. Uh, and it's just strange that, that you know, all of their used games come from this massive facility where, you know, people spend their entire day making sure that the games are refurbished properly and they go out to the stores in like new condition. Um, so it's strange that like you can have drugs just kind of chill out in the manual. So when dealing with that, you have to realize as well that the multiple different individuals will touch that product, mm-hmm. not just the people at the warehouse, not just the people who do the refurbishing or the people who handle it at the store. But I mean, you have, you know, people who come in and they'll say, hey, I'm going to take a look at this game case. Oh, I'm just going to pop a quick meth in there <laughs> and uh and then they might might just hide it yeah. you know that's entirely possible realistically what probably happened was uh some some dude came in and was like hey i like this game i want to buy a copy of it and he just for one reason may have slipped his drugs in there to hide it <laughs> and then he just maybe forgot it yeah that's I mean, that's probably not the most likely answer, but that's the one that I got in my head right now. Yeah, it's. I mean, who, who knows how it happened? Um, again, just the, the the entire concept of of the used economy of games is, is very very strange, and I have no clue how much longer that's going to stick around, uh, especially yeah. as we're moving more and more towards uh, digital sales, um, the all digital future, which we've been talking oh, about man. for like fifteen years. If they want me to have all digital, they should start putting in larger hard drives yeah. by default. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's a whole other can of worms. But let's move yeah. on to uh, some other stuff. Uh, DreamHack, uh, the sort of big uh, LAN tournament in uh, Sweden, uh, announced that, uh, you know, they, along with all the other sort of tournaments for for different games that they're going to be having uh, this summer at Dream, DreamHack 2017, um, they announced uh, tournaments for juniors, seniors, women, and uh, free-for-all players. So that's kind of exciting. They've, they've got a, a number of categories for, for Counter-Strike, Go, uh, Counter-Strike Go. But uh, Chris, the, the one that kind of caught my eye was was the announcement for a seniors competition. And, and DreamHack qualifies seniors as, as those that are above 30 years old. When when do you get your pension? <laughs> when uh, do you, are, are you okay taking your your medications by yourself? Do yeah, you, yeah. Do you, I, do you need a stay at home nurse? Yeah, I, I've got I've got my pension coming uh, th- this summer. Um, <laughs> it's so it's it's, it's it's kind of funny though uh, to to, cons- to think about the fact that in the gaming space, or at least the competitive gaming space, by the time you're in your late twenties, you're past your prime. Man. I'm 27 now. I don't want to think of myself as past my prime in anything except maybe going to a playground. Yeah, yeah. Seeing a clown, maybe. I'm past my prime in that. But, like, 
come on, don't call it seniors. <laughs> but but again, you know, this this kind of speaks to the fact that uh, response time and like fast twitch muscles in your hands start to deteriorate uh, by the time you get to your late twenties, early thirties. A lot of research kind of points to this. Um, and you know, like like I said, esports stars. You know, they're they're at their prime when they're 17, 18, and mid-20s, that's usually when they're moving into coaching and things like that. Yeah. Um, it's just really, really funny that they are just like, hey, are you a senior? <laughs> Man. We have a tournament for you. That makes me feel kind of bad. Because you think about all, all these people who want to like, who are, you know, our age and, and they want to start getting into the pro scene. Mm. I mean, looking at people like our friend Ted, he's he's very good at Counter-Strike. And he's 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 pushing twenty seven. He's too old now. He's too old now. Yeah, he, he can't be a pro. No, never. He he'll be am forever. <laughs> and then you have these kids who are, who are like twelve and thirteen who are way better than we are. Yeah, absolutely. And they're like, oh, I could go pro. I just gonna ask my mom's permission. Oh, I always point to the the example of uh, Sumail from. Um, uh, Pakistan, mm. who yeah. started playing Dota 2 and just became a really great uh, star in public matches and was asked to come over to the United States and play for Evil Geniuses, which is one of the largest uh, esports organizations around right now. And the kid became a millionaire. You know, mm -hmm. he's, he's like, I, I want to say he's closer to like 18, 19 now. But one, one, of the, one of the things, though, is like on the team, they had a manager specifically there to take care of him, you know, mm -hmm. to act as like a guardian, make sure that his visa stuff was taken care of, that he was like eating his vegetables, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, those those in house coaches are no joke. Mm -hmm. Like they're 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 not there just to teach the kids, you know, how to play better or how to act in in that certain in a certain environment, but it's making sure they're healthy, making sure they get up and exercise, taking care of them because they're an acting guardian for all yeah. of those kids in there. And I think that's cool. Yeah, for sure. Because that's, otherwise... That's, that's the job for us seniors. <laughs> oh, my God. We're in the wrong field. <laughs> Screw this podcast stuff. Yeah. Let's go coach, coach kids on how to be good at video games. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move into some uh, more uh, gaming-specific news. Uh, let's talk about some leaks. Um, new Assassin's Creed this year is tentatively, or, or what we think, is going to be called uh, Origins. Assassin's Creed Origins. Uh, so... Uh, I think we found out last year in some leaks that it was going to be set in ancient Egypt. Um, so a screenshot that is leaked out kind of confirms that. And it's been corroborated by Eurogamer and a couple other outlets. Um, so it kind of shows a photo of the protagonist on a, a boat in, on a river, which I'm guessing might be the Nile. I don't know. So it, this is interesting because Assassin's Creed has been a yearly franchise uh, for the, a long time. And then they sort of had the disastrous release of Assassin's Creed Unity. It, it just ran into all kinds of bugs. It was probably one of the weakest iteration or one of the weakest installments in the franchise in quite some time. And it was kind of panned critically. So Ubisoft decided to take a year off, which is something they have not done with Assassin's Creed for quite some time. And so this will be the first Assassin's Creed game in two years. Um, so what do you think about this news, Chris? What do you think about the, the setting of Egypt and the fact that they're telling an origin story and the fact that they've actually been like, oh, let's take a step back. Let's focus on development and get it right this time. You know, I really, really hope this does well. Mm -hmm. I, f I fell out of love with Assassin's Creed after yeah. Brotherhood. Yeah. And I just never played Black Flag. I didn't play was it Revelations or whatever that that other one was. I didn't play the one where it was where it was like uh, colonial. I didn't play any of those. I didn't play mm -hmm. the, the one based in China. But I like Egypt a lot. Yeah, I would probably play an Egyptian setting. Um, 
and the fact that it's it looks like it may be an attempt to go back to the roots, I mm-hmm. think, and not focus so much on the animus stuff, which I think a lot of people wanted and they didn't do very well. In my personal opinion, anyways. Yeah, I think I think the sort of modern day stuff has always been the weakest aspect of Assassin's Creed. Yeah. And even the devs have, have like tried to shy away from that storyline because it gets so complicated with just like, oh, there's this eternal struggle between Assassins and Templars and it exists in the modern day. But then there's also these weird pieces of Edens that like aliens brought to Earth. Spoilers for Assassin's Creed, I guess. <laughs> um yeah, it's it's really goofy. Um but 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 I think like the the what people have always loved is just like, oh, let's 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 stab people in these historical settings, right? I mean, yeah, that's that's why I like it. I yeah. I like being an assassin and just like murdering people mm. in ancient times. Yeah. Yeah. I I was not a fan of the whole here's a hologram mm-hmm. and you must now collect all the pieces of Eden or else aliens question mark. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it seems forced. I think that they could have definitely went a diff- an entirely different direction with that. And that's kind of what made me fell out of love with it, mm-hmm, fall mm-hmm. out of love with it, was the fact that it seemed so forced. Yeah, absolutely. I think if it was a lot more natural feeling, like, to, to, to me, a good storyline was when, and spoilers for you kids who may or may not have played the first couple Assassin's Creed games, um, was when, you know, the you as... Dres- De- De- Dresden? Dresden? No, uh, Dresden. Dresden? Des- Desmond. Yeah. When he was like ushered out of the Animus building. I, I see how good I am at this video game. Uh, Abst- uh, Abstergo? Is, that's who it is. Abstergo. Abstergo that's yeah. what it was. Um, yeah, when he was ushered out and you were being attacked by, by, few, by modern day Templars, I was like, I want more of this. Mm-hmm. I want this stuff. Because basically, instead of making it aliens, it could be like, oh yeah, now you're just Desmond in modern times doing what you're doing in assassin's creed yeah that's i'd be totally okay with that jumping off of cars and stuff that'd be mm-hmm. cool as I, hell. I also i also felt like the storyline with desmond was really weak like i actually greatly oh my, pre- yes. i greatly appreciated uh assassin's creed black flag because the, it was such a departure from the stuff they had done in the past they sort of abandoned all the desmond stuff they had this weird quirky meta story where you were basically working at a developer that was basically Ubisoft in everything but name. And they were talking about how you were working okay. on the Assassin's Creed games. It was like super, super what? meta. And you... <laughs> okay. But but what I loved about that game is the focus was just on being a pirate. Being this... this I can't remember his name. Uh, Kenway or something. And it was just like, hey, just be a pirate and like get, get a better ship. Go and like get treasure and like fight the bad guys it was just a lot of re- uh, a lot of fun um so i think when they focus on the sort of historical setting and and try and try and stay away from all the modern weirdness i think that's where assassin's creed shines so i guess we'll just have to wait and see what they do with assassin's creed origins um but again so so this isn't necessarily new news but it, i think a lot of it is just being confirmed um in the mm-hmm. lead up to its release probably later this year now I'm, I'm hoping it, it turns out pretty well. And who knows if it's good enough, I might actually pick it up again and mm-hmm. revisit some of the older ones. Yeah, but for sure. until I actually see a little bit more details, I don't think I'm going to be patient. Um, and speaking of uh, other development stuff, uh, sadly, Bioware Montreal, who just launched Mass Effect Andromeda, it sounds like they're being dramatically scaled back as a studio. 
uh, last month, uh, a number of Bioware Montreal employees were transferred to EA Motive. Um, so they are working on Star Wars Battlefront 2. And so it sounds like there's now only a very small team still at Bioware Montreal who are going to do support for the game um, and who are going to kind of do some more patches on the multiplayer stuff. It doesn't sound like they're going to be focusing on the single player sort of larger story uh, of the game. And a lot of other Bioware staff are going to be focusing on doing support for um, Bioware Edmonton's new upcoming project um, that still is untitled. Its code name right now is Dylan. Uh, so this is a new intellectual property that they haven't announced yet. Um, but Bioware Edmonton is sort of the main studio, and, and they're the ones who gave us the first three Mass Effect games. And Bioware Montreal is, is the studio who did uh, Mass Effect Andromeda, so that was their first kind of kick at the can with that franchise. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of like problems to, just to put it bluntly, with with Andromeda, you know, there's been a lot of bugs, a lot of uh, weird criticisms, or not weird criticism, but like a lot of people critiquing the story and uh, animations and that kind of thing. It's it's just had a very troubled launch. So I think it's kind of unfortunate to hear that uh, they've been kind of shuffled off the project so quickly, because that means you know support for the main game probably isn't going to be as um as perhaps fleshed out as we saw with some of the previous mass effect games like i don't know if we're ever going to see like a big substantial piece of dlc like we did for uh some of the other ones like the the citadel expansion for mass effect mm. 3 or or some of like the the lair of the shadow broker for mass effect 2 which which were both really great and, and contributed to the stories uh quite a bit and it also sounds like because of this and because of the negative reception to Andromeda, Mass Effect might be put on ice for a while. I haven't played Andromeda yet. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been kind of waiting to see where the development goes as far as patches are concerned. Mm -hmm. But I really like the Mass Effect universe. I think mm -hmm. it's interesting. I think it's diverse. It's It does some things you don't really see with a lot of different sci-fi out there. I mean, yeah, they've they've got big booby aliens. But, you know... <laughs> That's that's fine. You so got you got so Star bring Trek in, and Star I mean, Wars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Twi'lek uh, exists for a reason. Yeah. Um. But but I I really hope that uh this doesn't mean the the end for Mass Effect as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um. I really hope that uh, Bioware Montreal is able to sort of come back from this and and come out of this this hiatus status. That being said, when discussing stuff like Dylan. I'm curious because there have been a couple different uh, projects that Bioware has announced that they're going to be working on, and then they just get killed. Yeah. If I don't, I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago they had a four v one project, uh, kind of like Evolve or Dead by Daylight, where it was like modern sci fi. I, I vaguely remember this. Yeah. It was it was like modern sci fi powers based. It was it was a really cool concept, mm -hmm. and it just got gutted. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, that would have made you so much money. <laughs> I mean, looking at stuff like Evolve, people paid a lot of money into that game when it first came out. Yeah, but Evolve also died a very quick death as well. But, I mean, imagine having a game like Evolve with the support of a of an of a industry like EA and Bioware and that, that big of a name behind it. I mean, mm -hmm. taking a look at stuff like Knights of the uh, – just the Old Republic MMO. Yeah. Like, it's still alive. Yeah, and it's still very successful. Exactly. I, I think definitely the name Bioware brings that 
that um that longevity to it mm. and, and I'm, not, I'm not just saying oh yeah you can name drop and you get better success it's their team is good yeah all of their teams are very good uh say what you will about andromeda and its many quirks i think one of the 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 problems with andromeda and and we talked about this on the show before is just the fact that um very often these these larger studios are held accountable to the publishers and publishers Mm -hmm. are accountable to their investors and shareholders so if mass effect could have spent another six months in the oven that probably would have been very very good for development Mm -hmm. um and just the fact that you know sometimes someone up the chain is saying nope the game has to come out on this date because we need to see these types of returns in this quarter and that kind of doesn't jive with the creative process and that's kind of one of the realities of game development so i think that that was probably a big issue with with Andromeda. So unfortunately, it was probably rushed out the door, and it you know it wasn't as I don't know if it it because they haven't released numbers for it. So I don't know if it was as financially successful as Bioware and EA wanted it to be. So I I, I don't know if they were just like ooh this kind of turned into a mess. People have been like really angry again about some some of the stuff the game breaking bugs and that kind of thing. Um, so are we just gonna drop support for this? Because because again, they're they're gonna be supporting the multiplayer stuff, but it doesn't sound like they're gonna fix any of some of the probably bigger issues that people had with the game. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. I don't know what's gonna happen with uh, Bioware. I guess I'm excited to see what they do with um, you know uh, Dylan, which is again uh, the new game coming from uh, Bioware Edmonton. Uh, this is kind of unfortunate because I think if they had been given the time, they could have probably fixed a lot of the things in andromeda that, that people were complaining about um, and they've already done like a, a number of significant patches so it's kind of sad to see them i don't want to say shut down but just like cut short of being able to continue on that project yeah i i completely agree with you and on the note of you know developers bowing down to their publishers and vice versa um i i think that is kind of what destiny also suffered from early mm-hmm. on uh, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people remember that when destiny was sort of announced and they were talking about all these huge story arcs it's gonna be a great single player experience in addition to the multiplayer experience then when we got it it was just kind of just like a regular mmo yep um that a lot of people will will recognize that that was a lot of they needed to meet numbers they needed to do this and i mean destiny is definitely still considered a, a grand success mm-hmm. by by you know many different uh companies uh but i'm actually really interested to see where destiny 2 goes in that in that regard yeah um mainly because like they are able to learn from those mistakes well not not mistakes but but those experiences Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that activision is also going to see those those same kind of uh correlations as well so they're going to say okay well we 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 force them to sort of stop development and just work with what they had. And this is the numbers we got. What if we actually let them have free range of whatever they wanted? And I mean, the, the announcement for destiny two came out, what, like last month sometime. Uh, that, that was like the, like the, it leaked and then it, it, it was officially announced, but we've known about destiny two for probably the last year. Like even Bungie has publicly said, yes, we are working on destiny two. Yeah. And then we're like in, recording this on the 13th so in about like 11 days i think we're actually gonna see gameplay stuff Mm -hmm. they're gonna do a whole a whole conference basically a whole like powerpoint or whatever yeah and i think i i'm excited yeah because they've already confirmed pc release yeah 
So in other probably sad developer news, I want to talk about Square Enix and IO Interactive. So IO Interactive are the folks behind the Hitman series. Um, and Hitman has had some ups and downs, but more, more often than not, it's been praised for um, the games that they create and sort of the, the sandboxes that they have for this this bold assassin who, who just like gets to try and kill people in very quirky, funny ways and not get caught. And the last Hitman game that came out last year um, was sort of a refresh of the series and uh, a reboot, if you will. And it was very, very successful, uh, seemingly. And it was critically praised. Everyone was in love with it. Also, they took a huge gamble with the episodic release uh, uh, schedule where they would release sort of like one big sandbox level and then a month or two later would release another one. And I think because of that, it it kept the game in sort of the the public conversation for almost the entire year. And I, I, I personally played it and I loved it. It made my game of the year list. It was so much fun and uh, such an amazing game. It's just like this very tongue-in-cheek satirical look at like what if a hitman had to kill people and what if they were all weird jerks. And um, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a really, really fun game. Um, but unfortunately, Square has decided to part ways with um, uh, IO Interactive. Um, so they... they the quote here is, they've, quote, regrettably decided to withdraw from the business of IO Interactive. As a result of this, the company started discussions with potential new investors and is currently in, negoti in negotiations to secure this investment. Whilst there can be no guarantees that the negotiations will be concluded successfully, they are being explored since this is in the best interests of our shareholders, the studio, and the industry as a whole. And this is weird, Chris, because Square Enix just announced record sales and profits across their entire company. So I really don't understand why they're dropping IO, especially after IO released probably one of their best games to date. And this makes like no sense to me, uh, but I'm not a business person. I'm not very smart when it comes to these types of things. Um, and also this leaves the Hitman intellectual property and in that series and its future in limbo. Honestly, I think that if you're seeing a company with, with drastic success, like you are seeing with, with IO and, um, and the Hitman series, I think honestly, it must have been bad blood. Maybe something, something may have happened, and that's why they wanted to sever ties. Or maybe there was some other issue that we're not aware of. That's that's deep, deep into the company. Um, but it's definitely going to be a huge hit. I think. I think they're they're going to suffer for it, and they're going to have a bit of an issue making up these these sort of um, these numbers. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious if they have a non compete, uh, IO Interactive. That is, if they have a non compete clause with uh. Uh, Square Enix, because if they don't, someone's going to come and pick up mm -hmm. Hitman. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and this leads, or this leaves rather, their second season for that Hitman game in question, because they, again, they're public, publicly talking about, like, yes, we're going to do a second season, we're going to put out new maps, and it's going to be, you know, uh, a whole, whole nother game, you know, sort of set, or, or a whole nother game sort of styled after uh, what they did last year. And uh, I was really excited for that because, like, like I said, it was probably like one of my favorite things that I played uh, in 2016. So it's yeah, it, it's kind of unfortunate. You know, Final Fantasy 15 probably sold better for them, but I'm pretty sure Hitman 2016 reviewed better for them. Let's uh, let's talk about esports a little bit. Let's talk about Overwatch. Um, so Overwatch and Blizzard have had some um, very interesting ideas about what they want to do with the competitive scene around that game, and 
it sounds like they want to do an esports league that is almost more akin to a traditional sports league where they wanted to base esports franchises around cities. That way, you know, they, they could have some sort of local support for teams, have some sort of st- stability with uh, sponsors and, uh, you know, just team uh, companies themselves. And it seems like they're kind of running into some issues with that right now. Um, so the Overwatch League was announced back in November. Over the last couple of weeks, there have been four or five esports organizations that have dropped Overwatch from their roster completely. Um, so Denial Esports, uh, Team Solo Mid, Red Reserve, uh, Complexity uh, are some of the big names that are just like, no, Overwatch, we're, we're not going to pursue this right now because it's either not financially viable or they think the to get involved with the the uh, the the Overwatch League might be a little too expensive. So ESPN uh, put out a, a report basically saying that they've talked to sources that say a single regional franchise in the Overwatch League could run upwards of $20 million. One of the notes here on this Polygon article that I'm looking at is basically saying that's like almost 10 times more than uh, a franchise would cost for like League of Legends or like a Dota 2 or Counter-Strike Go. Uh, so you, you took a look at this story, Chris. What do you kind of think about this so far? I mean, I want there to be city leagues, mm-hmm. like really bad. I think that's a, definitely a way to help legitimize esports in the eye of the, of the majority of, of the public, I, yeah. s- I suppose. Yeah. But money is money, man. Mm. Um, we've, we've talked previously about esports not being able to handle its money well mm-hmm. in, in regards to the teams and their players. I think that if they're going to be spending more money than making it, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Realistically. Um, so, so you know, the, the concern here from, I guess, the, the, the existing Overwatch teams is the fact that Blizzard is ignoring them in favor of perhaps some of these larger organizations like people who already own large traditional sports franchises and are willing to branch out into esports. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they mention uh, the Craft Sports Group, which uh, own the New England Patriots, uh, who are securing an Overwatch franchise. Um so that was a concern. Uh, Blizzard, uh, their PR group, uh, reached out uh, with a, a fairly hefty statement uh, to sort of clear up some of these rumors. Uh, they, uh, I'll just kind of briefly summarize. They say, uh, we want to be clear that our ultimate goal is to create an exciting Overwatch esports ecosystem um, that's accessible to a wide audience, sustainable and rewarding for everyone. Uh, we're doing our best to take great care with building this ecosystem. And as with much of what we do, we don't release information until we're at a place where it makes sense to do so. Um, they also say, we'd like to dispel any rumors that we're ignoring endemics. Anyone who knows Blizzard understands how deeply we care about the communities around our games. The league is built upon the best elements of endemics, esports programs, and traditional sports, and we're in active discussions with many teams and owners from both worlds because it will take a village to stand up a league with such an unprecedented structure. Those conversations have been going well, and there's a lot of excitement around our ambitious plans. So yeah, and then they kind of are just like, you know, you shouldn't listen to unnamed sources, blah, 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 blah. So what do you think about their response to that so far? I think it's a business response. Yeah. Really. I mean, they're they're trying to do, it sounds like they're trying to do preemptive damage control because it's going to make some players upset. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that, you know, they're being denied what could be potentially more avenues for success. But honestly, I'm I'm so out of the loop when it comes to, to Overwatch esports. Mm-hmm. That I'm not sure if it's if if it is like I said a preemptive sort of back backpedal, or if they're trying to ramp up for the eventuality that a bunch of players are going to come to them and say, "Hey, we we actually want this." Yeah, you know, 
it, it's it's definitely interesting because most esports have found success by growing from sort of a grassroots level to the point that they're at now. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, you have a lot of these big organizations coming in, a lot of big sponsors, a lot of money. The star players are going to be attracted to that, and, and these these teams are going to want to want to pick up those stars and cultivate their talent and that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time. Uh, what I like about certain scenes, like, uh, again, like most of my experiences is in Dota 2, but I can look at a scene like that where, yes, you have some larger organizations, but also you have star players with a little bit of, of funds in their pocket that can branch out on their own and form a team, you know, just get a house somewhere, scrim, you know, just just work on, on, their, on their game. And then they can compete at the same level as some of these larger teams that have a lot more um, structure ar- around their organization mm-hmm. and they can be just as successful. So I think that's one of my concerns about setting up large like city-based franchises and also the city-based franchise thing I think is such an antiquated uh, model that I don't necessarily think will actually work with esports. Like I think yes, it's it's fun and you do see it in esports where you are cheering for regional teams. Chinese fans cheer for the Chinese teams. You know, uh, Southeast Asian fans, they cheer for those teams. Uh, European fans cheer, cheer for those teams. Uh, the Russians cheer for the Russians. The Americans cheer for the Americans. Like, yes, that exists. But I don't, necessar- don't necessarily see, like, people in Toronto who aren't necessarily into esports being like, oh, there's this Toronto Overwatch team. Yeah, we're going to root for Toronto. Especially because... Esports doesn't exist on television. It doesn't exist on radio. It exists on the internet. And that is mm-hmm. very... I don't know if you know this, Chris, but the internet's like a global thing. What? <laughs> um, so again, it kind of seems like an old idea. And I don't... I, there are very, very smart people at Blizzard, you know? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just a, a, a talking head on this silly internet radio show. But I don't know if it's the right thing for esports. I think there's a good way to do it and a bad way to do it. And it's going to be a very fine line that people have to sort of tiptoe around. Because, like you said, it, esports doesn't exist anywhere but the internet. I think that if we if they want to have this be a huge deal, if they want esports to be out in the, in the public eye, they need a lot, of, a lot of collateral back that up. We need yeah. commercials. We need radio spots. Hell, we, we need shows talking about esports more mm-hmm. i mean i hate to say it but your best avenue is probably big bang theory as like <laughs> as like a a a sort of broaching the subject and i think on that note big bang theory is awful don't watch it <laughs> but uh but yeah that's probably the best one unless we have an actual other show that talks about esports yeah i would watch the hell out of an esports drama all <laughs> right now. Oh, I, I believe um, you're referring to the hit Filipino show. I'm in love with a Dota player. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. What? <laughs> what is this? It's pretty amazing, is what it is. It's it's Hold like on. a it's like a high school drama, a will they won't they type of story. It just looks like a good wholesome uh, high school teen drama. Except sometimes they go to esports tournaments. Um. Oh, she's a cheerleader too, and he's teaching her Dota. <laughs> oh, that's that's adorable. Anyways, Chris, that that exists. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so, I might have to watch that now. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but again, to your point, I think you know th- there are two schools of thought uh, when it comes to this. I think there are some people who say like we need mainstream recognition for esports to really take off, and then there are mm-hmm. others that say no, no, we don't. Esports is doing well and becoming 
like insanely successful without it. You know, like mm. they are using Twitch, they are using YouTube, just the internet in general uh, to, to to grow at like an exponential rate. And there are a lot of people who say we don't need an ESPN, we don't need that mainstream coverage. Mm. And there are those that say, well, no, you actually do. And I don't know. I, I, it's an interesting debate to have. I honestly think that, and I'm. We can feel free to debate this if you so choose, but. I believe they do need those things. Mm -hmm. Definitely. They need more ad time. I mean, step one, buy out these stadiums that they're doing right now. Staples Center? Mm. Oh, that's that that's all League of Legends now. That's all Dota. I mean, I mean they they but they are. Like I'm going yeah. to the international this summer and that's at Key Arena. Like that is a seventeen thousand yeah, person arena. That, that is the best first step you can have is yeah. selling out these huge arenas, normally dedicated to like basketball games, hockey games, stuff like this. And the the fact that people say, "Oh no, we're we're fine there. That's all we need." It's like, no, you need to you need to grow faster. You need more. Yeah, I, th I think we should move on. It's 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 interesting. We'll see what happens with the Overwatch League. I think it's very ambitious, and we're just gonna have to wait and see. Oh my yes. Um, so we were talking a little bit about Twitch. Um, so let's talk some more about Amazon's plans for that platform. Uh, so Twitch, obviously the largest video game live streaming platform on the planet. And they've had some success with broadcasting uh, certain shows uh, over the past uh, year or so. They've, they've done these large streams uh, and marathons of things like The Joy of Painting um, or The Power Rangers or things like that. Cosmos. You know. Cosmos, yeah, Cosmos. yeah, yeah. This is so usually they're tied into some sort of other promotional thing, but Amazon is now thinking about doing long form TV series on Twitch, which is an interesting idea. Um, but the other side of it is they kind of want them to be interactive, very much akin to like a choose your own adventure story. Um, so they want to stream original programming, and this comes from their COO, Kevin Lin. And uh, but again, with, with an interesting twist, they want them to be written and produced along with along with input from Twitch's viewers. So that's obviously a big part of that platform. People live commenting and and, and talking to uh, while they are watching, you know, whether it's these big tournaments or whether they're watching their favorite broadcaster. And uh, another quote here from from uh, tw uh, from Twitch and Amazon uh, quote: "We'd want to identify really progressive studios that are willing to take a gamble and not release something in a big dump like most premium digital platforms these days." Uh, so again, this is uh, Lynn who, who's speaking. So someone who will work with us and say, week to week, we're going to change this thing. We're going to somehow make it a little bit more interactive. If we found the right partner, we'd do it. So what do you think about this idea about Twitch and Amazon wanting to do these sort of long form series with input from the community um, where they would change things week to week, depending on the feedback they, they were getting live as people are watching? What do you think about all that? Well, um, I think it's a great idea, honestly. I think if it can be implemented very well. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was an Old Spice channel where they had a guy in the woods, and that was basically choose your own adventure based on chat. Oh yes, that, that was like a obviously a marketing thing for Old Spice. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I think I vaguely remember this. Uh, a lot of people told him to uh, eat things that he probably should not have eaten, and he would do them. Mm -hmm. I think it was I think it was a great time, um, <laughs> be, because it allowed that interaction, and a lot of people got people talking like, okay, this is. This is kind of funny. I want to keep doing it. I want to keep coming back and seeing what happens. Yeah. I think if they do stuff like that, it'll be really cool. Uh, and giving anybody a choice in anything will always get them to come back. Look at stuff like um, Twitch plays Pokemon. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was that that excelled because people were able to say, okay, I can make these decisions. Yeah. I, I'm an influencer. So, now. So, so this was sort of like, uh, I can't remember how, how it was set up, but essentially uh, a Pokemon game was set to 
sort of pause when it would come to a decision. Uh, or no, sorry, Actually, sorry, so that, that was later, right? That, yeah, that that was when they that's when they tried doing Dark Souls, right? Okay, so uh, so with Pokemon, it was like uh, people would spam the chat with input commands, mm-hmm. and the game would uh, basically take all of those commands, and it 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 was it was kind of funny because you would have a character kind of stuck like turning around in circles. Uh, and people will be like, no, 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 you need to push like this button to get at this item. But then there'd be all people be like, no, 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 I want them to spin in circles because that's funny. It was chaos. But after a while, the chat started to work together. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was ridiculous. They would name characters things and you had like this whole lore behind why the characters are named this, all this chaos in, in the protagonist's mind. Mm-hmm. It was great. Yeah. Like there was a point in time where you had to get up at a certain time in the day to go to this channel so you could be there when everyone is being collaborative mm-hmm. versus the chaos. Right. It was it was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing. And I think if we did something similar to that, not so much like, oh, eat this pine cone. <laughs> but like, if you got to make these decisions, and even just like doing like straw polls during chat yeah. would be great, um, to sort of influence how the show progresses, I think that would be really fun. Yeah. So, so again, it's probably not the type of thing that would happen live, but it would be, be the type of thing where they take that live uh, feedback input yeah and that feed and that input and they say oh okay people don't like this character so we should maybe try and change them or do something differently maybe we'll just kill them off or so so if you had a very professional looking show a la you know game of thrones or something um where people could could you know have that that live feedback it, it could be interesting i think my huge issue with this is sort of more of a narrative problem and a storytelling problem and that is the fact that like you shouldn't give the people what they want because it it when you when you're like yes that 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 form of interactivity is fun and exciting but when you subvert people's expectations that's when you get really great storytelling because could you imagine game of thrones breaking bad uh the wire uh sopranos being as big as they were if people could dictate what the next thing uh, was going to be or what the next yeah. you know major plot point was going to be. I think subverting people's expectations is why those shows were insanely popular. And those creatives and those storytellers told the story that they wanted to tell without interference from the public. So I think a big part of doing Choose Your Adventure books was about not knowing what's going to happen next. Right. So I think it's going to be less of telling them the the chat telling the, the the story themselves. It's more of them deciding where to go next, okay. and then the story evolving from that point. So, for example, you see a sword on the ground. Do you pick it up or do you run? If you pick it up, okay, now now you have a sword, but now you're being attacked by a bunch of people. Do you run or do you fight them? Right. If you fight them, okay, you've taken damage or you're and you're almost dead, but. Now you have no bandits around, where if you ran and no weapon, you might have been attacked and had all your stuff stolen instead. Mm-hmm. It's it's a sort of evolving experience being to, being able to think on your feet. Um, and the same thing goes for like improv and stuff like that. You have to be able to go, okay, yes and, yes and, yes yeah, and, yeah, yeah. all the time. And I think that this type of show would require a crap ton of planning. <laughs> yeah. because, it's definitely ambitious, for sure. Yeah, you've got to you've got to be ready. Mm. You've got to be ready. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if if Twitch and Amazon pursue that. They're still sort mm-hmm. of in the planning phases and kind of kicking around ideas. Um, so yeah, uh, I I'm kind of hesitant. I don't know if it's a good idea, but uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, so let's quickly talk about YouTube. 
and ad revenue, which is always fun. That's a, that's a fun topic of discussion. So I, I'm, I'm looking at a, a piece that was written by Michael Sawyer over on, on Polygon. It's entitled, Why YouTubers Are Losing So Much Money and How They Can Survive the Crunch. This kind of stems from a couple of large decisions that Google made uh, about their YouTube platform and, and about advertising. And uh, basically, people are seeing a lot of their videos uh, receiving less funds or just becoming demonetized entirely. Um, and YouTube started rolling out this, uh, quote, ad-friendly change in February, uh, where videos can be flagged as not friendly to advertisers. And eventually, uh, YouTube is, uh, gave advertisers the option to exclude certain uh, subjects from, uh, from their, I guess, advertising portfolio. Um, so that their their ads would not be associated with certain channels who were known for that type of uh, video, or, or rather, who just published a video who one off had certain subjects like uh, some some of the things that they note here are like tragedy and conflict, uh, social issues, uh, sexually suggestive, uh, sensational and shocking, profanity and rough language, um, that kind of thing. So it's it's a pretty long argument. He, he covers a lot of facets of this. And, um, you know, it's, it's been this kind of big debate in the YouTube community about like, well, it, should YouTube be able to do this? Um, why are advertisers so hesitant to advertise with certain channels? How do we maintain or, or just, you know, how do, how do I make a living as someone who used to do lots of Let's Plays or lots of comedy stuff on YouTube, gaming related stuff? And, and, and how do I kind of move forward? So uh, you got a chance to quickly look at this. So what do you think about YouTube making these decisions and advertising advertisers being hesitant to have their stuff associated with certain content. I think that we have a common theme here where they're making a business decision. Mm -hmm. They are making the choice to say, hey, we don't like this content on our site. It's fine. They have that choice. Yeah. They're just going to piss off a lot of people because where YouTubers used to have this freedom to say what they wanted in vlogs and in all these different pieces that, that, that they're creating that's being taken from them well, well it's not it's not necessarily that they're they're being censored in any way it's not it's not that they're saying like you can't put that video on youtube it's that they're saying advertisers now have the option to not advertise on your videos it's it's a backwards way of censorship if you ask me <laughs> because yes they're they're not actively saying you can't post that but they're saying hey feel free to post that just know you're not going to be able to get paid this month yeah that's that's going to be sent if someone says hey you're wh you can do whatever you want at this job but just know that if you do this particular thing that you were doing previously mm -hmm. we're not going to pay you yeah but hmm. see i'll it's, I'll, I'll it's influencing yeah it's I'll, influencing their the, the structure of of their product yeah this this is why I like having you on the show because we can argue about this stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, do it. Bring it. I, I want to hear. It. Come see, talk to I, me. I wouldn't use the c word censor uh, because I think this is basically saying you can do whatever you want on the platform. Yes. But now YouTube, or not necessarily YouTube, but these advertisers are just like, oh shit, we like we we didn't realize our our brand were was being associated with this type of stuff. So again, these are these advertisers making this business decision and saying, well. They, you know, they as a company need to be, be, be more aware of the types of videos that their ads are going to be running on. And as a result, you know, YouTubers are now kind of having reality catch up with them and bite them in the ass and be like, oh shit, there are actually financial repercussions for the things that I am saying and doing on the internet. But I mean, on the flip side of that, though, I think that they're also pinging a lot of people 
that have been doing the same thing. Like they're they're talking about real world topics that incorporate the the, the term murder. Yes. And oh, you lose all your lose all your monetization for that yeah. because you're talking about the world. Yes. Yes. And I think that is complete and utter garbage. Yeah. That I I can't make a YouTube video expressing my opinion about how I feel about a terrorist group because it has the word terrorist in it. Yeah. Um, I'll, I definitely agree with you. Like, I think it's it's a system that is uh, far from perfect and and very problematic so at, at the yeah. moment because you're a lot of this is being dictated by algorithms, right? And just the fact that, like you said, so certain key phrases, certain words without context are are being mm-hmm. flagged as no, we can't monetize this with this brand right now. Um, so again, like I think a story was circulating last week that a lot of people who were talking about Call of Duty World War II, uh, which is their game coming out this fall, were being flagged because they were talking about war. Yeah. You know, instead of like, oh, this is just a, a game that's coming out. It needs to be fixed somehow. I'm not the kind of person that, that'll know how to fix it, but I definitely think that it needs to be taken a look at, at a, under a microscope, mm. not, not a telescope. Um, but but again, I, I think you know one of the issues here is the fact that advertisers like publishers are very risk averse. You know, so when they find out, oh, this 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 YouTuber YouTuber X is you know doing videos on Minecraft, and then you know the next day they they put out something that is perhaps very politically charged, and okay, yes, and then someone like a Coca Cola or a McDonald's or a Disney is going to be like, oh, you know what? Yeah, we're we're not going to advertise with you anymore. Yeah, I, I think I think that's fair. I think that like this is gonna be very I'm gonna try and parse my words as well as I can here. Mm-hmm. I think that when you approach a subject like politics, yeah, you have to be aware that you are there's a good chance you might have a dissenting opinion to others mm-hmm. who, who can influence your income. Yeah. Taking a look at people who do new shows on YouTube, who do shows that regard um I'm not going to say hurting individuals, but affecting the um, the image of another person. Yeah, those those types of shows that you're going to see a lot of demonetization from people like Keemstar, people like Drama Alert and his show, um, all this stuff where they say, "Oh yeah, so and so is is garbage because he he's you know backstabbing so and so." That's defamation technically, mm-hmm. and that's going to be demonetized. Where I mean. That's been happening since the beginning of YouTube. There's always going to be drama. It's a big, it's a big high school party, <laughs> and you're all going to be talking about each other. Yeah. But I think that the the actual news shows saying, talking about the the state of affairs in the United States or talking about Brexit, all this stuff that's getting demonetized is forcing them to because that's that's their livelihood. YouTube is how they make their money. Them being forced to not make this content. In fear that they're not going to be able to pay their bills is complete and utter garbage, in my opinion. Let people have their their freedom of speech, mm. and yes, while they do still have it, you're basically saying we're not going to pay you anymore, and that's there should have been a little bit of heads up from YouTube's part. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, again, I, I think the I'll disagree with you and say that the the onus yeah. is is on the creators, and that like. Yes, it's shitty that they didn't know about this beforehand or they didn't realize how dramatically it would affect them. And I think YouTube and Google needs to be more transparent about the systems that they're implementing uh, with their platform and how that'll affect advertising and monetizing on videos. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think uh, creators on the platform need to be cognizant of the fact that 
the things I say, the things I do, the things I present are going to have uh, repercussions. But but what about like pigeonholing yourself in? So let's let's go back to the example of the Minecraft YouTuber. Mm-hmm. Let's say that he's he's now taking a break from Minecraft for whatever reason, and he wants to talk about his actual life mm-hmm. and talk about you know people in his life who have died. You can't talk about dying anymore. Are you going to say no? You can't talk about your personal life because I know I know that this is the way you make money. But just go back to playing Minecraft. <laughs> You're right. It it is a very uh, sticky situation. It's, yeah, it's super sensitive because you're on one hand you're saying, yeah, you 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 know what makes you money. You make like a side channel for your stuff, mm-hmm. but maybe you want your entire viewership to see how you really feel because we all know that swapping to a, a secondary channel for other more personal things is going to have a lot less impact. Yeah, for sure. De- demographically speaking, people want to save clicks. Um, whereas in my personal opinion, I would prefer to have the person talk to me directly about it. Mm-hmm. And that's just me on like a personal level. So it, it, it's definitely weird. And I'm curious to see how they go forward with it. Um, but I, I do, I do feel for a lot of the content creators out there who are unable to, to actually make that money. And I think that's also kind of why we're seeing a lot of people make the jump over to places like Twitch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who don't care as much. Yeah. Uh, now they don't care as much now. Now. Yes. Currently, they don't care as much, yeah. uh, but with, with the ramp up of some different projects they're working on, mm-hmm. I think that we're going to see a lot more, um, a lot less leniency mm-hmm. when it comes to to stuff uh, like hate speech. Yeah, absolutely. And defamation. Yeah, um, it, it's it's definitely interesting times for these large platforms, and I'm, I'm curious to see where they go in the future. I think a lot, it, it, just lots of growing pains as everyone is figuring this out together. So it, it, it'll it be interesting to see the, you know, what changes YouTube implements, how advertisers react to these new platforms, because advertisers, you know, big businesses are very, like I said, cautious, they're very risk averse, and they're very slow moving. And it's going to take them time to catch up. And there are going to be a lot of mistakes along the way. It's a, it's a tough cookie to crack. <laughs> that it is. Uh, but I, I definitely think that uh, the creators out there will, will be okay. Mm-hmm. There's no need to sign a petition saying down with YouTube, death to sponsors. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they're, they know their business. They're, there's a reason they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's because they're good at it. Um, okay, so I think that's it for the news this week. Let's uh, move into the next part of the show, which is Off the Shelf, which is where we talk about some of the stuff that we're playing or perhaps maybe some old favorites. Um, Chris, what have, you, uh, what have you been playing recently? What do you want to talk about today? I love Persona 5. <laughs> it's not necessarily like an old game, considering it came out last month. Yeah. But I've already beaten it. Nice. And I'm playing it again. Yeah. See, I've, I've never experienced uh, the Persona games or the Shin Megami Tensei series, uh, which it kind of spins off from. Mm-hmm. But I've heard very good things about Persona 4 Golden. Uh, I just never had oh. a Vita, which is the, the platform that it came out on. So I was kind of looking forward to Persona 5. And I've heard heard really good things. I've heard some critiques. Um, so tell me your thoughts. So uh, the really good things are the combat is really simplistic. They added a few new features like the ability to use gun damage, which was uh, never really a thing before. Um, they normally split the damage out in into like regular and then piercing. Yeah. Um, but now it's just regular, bullet, and then your, your magic abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really cool actually because the storyline was fantastic in my in my opinion. They really flipped a couple things on its head. 
Um, there were some social links or, or character connections that I didn't really enjoy. Yeah. But that's why I want to play through it again. So now I can use a guide and I can get hundred. I can hundred percent the game and find out all the little nitty gritty details of all the different characters, and I can form an actual opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, there's one thing I want to talk about the Persona games though that most people uh, don't really enjoy about them. And that's the fact that they are a dating simulator at some point. Yeah. You you do you do get to pick who is your who is your best girl, who is your <laughs> best boy. Um, and I think that's actually kind of interesting because it's it's realistic in that sense. Mm-hmm. If you're spending all this time with, with these individuals, you there's a chance you're gonna form an attraction to them if they were like your if you were hanging out with them every day at high school, yeah. you you there's a chance you may become attracted to an individual. Yeah. Um there is also uh, the chance that you can um, sleep or rather have relationships with older women. Okay, okay. Uh, so there's that if that if that's your jam. But for me, it's it's a mixture of Pokemon mm-hmm. where you collect all the demons. Yeah. Uh, it's a dungeon crawler like Diablo mm-hmm. where you kill all, all the monsters. Um, and the storyline was actually really good. I thought it was really fun and enjoyable. Yeah. Now for the bad stuff. Um, I was I was just going to ask a couple questions first about the social stuff. Yeah, so go for um, it. The protagonist, you have to play as, as a man, right? Yes. You are forced to play as a man. Unlike Persona 3 Fez, which was the re-release of Persona 3 for the, for the PSP. Right. Where you could play as a girl. Okay. Um, so are they only like heterosexual relationships that only- you can heterosexual relationships okay. which i really hated yeah. because i felt there was one character in particular i was like i i i want this between us mm-hmm. but i know this can never happen i want to romance our, this this boy <laughs> our love was was never meant to be it was it was forbidden love it was forbidden love um yeah so so all of the critiques that i've heard of the game often stem from some of the uh backward ideas around um homosexuality in japan Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, sort of that, uh, ingrained homophobia, perhaps some of the awkward social stuff. I've also heard some things saying that the localization probably wasn't as tight as it could have been. And, per- yeah. and perhaps that the story, I don't want to say spins it wheels, spins its wheels, but like it kind of doesn't necessarily always respect your time in that it'll, it'll like circle around certain plot points more than it has to. I, I think that there were a couple parts of that game, and there was, wasn't that many where I felt it did that, but there were a few where I think it kept revisiting old topics, mm-hmm. and it was a lot of to get its point across, because there were some times where I was like, okay, I think I understand where it's going with this, and in some cases it flipped its head. Right. On there, it was like, no, this is actually how it is. Okay. Um, where it was just trying to really solidify that fact. Um, however, the only localization issues I saw were in dialogue, where... In the in the Japanese text, or in what's being said in Japanese, because I know a little bit of Japanese. My wife knows more. Mm-hmm. But we were sitting there uh, playing the game last night, and she goes, "Oh, that that's not what they mean there. That's that's something entirely different." Right. Or like they'll they'll just make a noise, and uh, for for a lot of Japanese statements, you can just like make a grunt of some dis- of some descript, and it it can mean something. Right. Like uh, there there's one aspect where your your sort of companion character Morgana, who's a cat uh says like oh i have an idea but in but the the japanese audio is aha you're like oh, okay no I, I i can actually parse that from the noise they made right so i think it was different mm-hmm. uh but that's kind of what i expect coming from a japanese game 
uh, where you know you're it's very anime. Yeah, yeah, and I think anyone yeah. who's who's watched a lot of anime television or, or film in the past will understand that there's always that that um, sort of divide between uh, what is actually happening on screen and what the the characters are actually saying in Japanese, and sometimes mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily always translate um, into English uh, perfectly. Um, so, yeah, so there can exactly. be some awkwardness sometimes experiencing that content uh, as a Westerner. Uh, a couple of friends of mine also have a running joke that uh, when the game was released, we're like, finally, it's winter 2014. <laughs> that game was supposed to come out like even before that, I think. Winter 2014. Trust me. Is that the original launch date? Jeez. Yeah. Because that was like a PlayStation 3 game or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, video game development. Such a fun, fun thing. Right. Um, anyways, Persona Five sounds really cool. Um, I'm excited to check that out. Uh, when, whenever the heck I'm going to get some time. Um, there's all these like massive games coming out, and it's just like no, no one, ha- yeah, no one has the I, time to play all these. Uh, Persona Five. People say it's 80 hours. I spent 120 hours on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, expect a long game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's an RPG. Expect a long game. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's, let's maybe uh, move into some recommendations outside of games. Um, so I've been watching American Gods, which is the adaptation of Neil Gaiman's novel, uh, which kind of came out in the late 90s. And mm-hmm. I think this is something that they've been trying to turn into a movie or a television, television series for quite some time. Um, as of recording, I think there's two episodes that have been out already. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of digging it. Like, like, I haven't read that book since like probably the early 2000s. But is it good? It was good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, no, I mean, is, is the show good? I've read the book many times. Oh, yeah. The show is fantastic. Like, I think with with a book like American Gods, it's kind of like this almost like uh, magical realism or like this modern day fantasy type of story. Yeah. And I I remember reading it and I'm like, how the hell would they ever translate to this to the screen? I thought it was near impossible. Uh, but those first couple of episodes, I'm like, you know what? They're doing a pretty pretty damn good job. Um, and I'm, I'm really into it so far. Uh, so, so again, I, I can't speak definitively to it because there are, are only two or three episodes that, that have come out already. Uh, but so far it's pretty freaking rad and, and I'm really, really enjoying it. So, I mean, Ian McShane plays Mr. Wednesday and that dude is just a, oh. a phenomenal actor. Oh, he's so good. Um, they've got, uh, Ricky Whittle, uh, playing the main character, Shadow Moon. And this is the first time I've actually seen him in anything. Um, and he's, he's pretty solid. Um, so very much looking forward to, uh, where the show goes and, and hopefully it can live up to, uh, fan expectations. Uh, and this is off of stars, correct? Yes. Uh, what about you? What do you want to recommend to the folks at home today? I've been kind of keeping myself kind of closeted from a lot of stuff it, it's it was my birthday recently mm. and i kind of like sit up in a hole on my birthday because i like to be left alone yeah generally i'm, I'm at that age where i don't like big parties yeah for sure uh this was actually my first birthday not going anywhere okay i had a big day di- i had a big dinner planned and i was gonna go meet people if you like a huge event but then my wife was feeling pretty sick so i was like oh we'll just stay home today mm. so i just sort of hung out at home and it's really important to to realize you don't have to do stuff. <laughs> you if you're an adult, you don't have to do anything. <laughs> you can just hang out. Yeah. And that's great. I like just not doing anything. When when I was when I was younger like 18, 19, I would go out every weekend every weekday if I could. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm older, I was like I just want to just do nothing. 
I want to I want to just like buy a pizza yeah and watch a movie yeah and just hang out and I think that there's a lot of issues with people who realize oh it I I have to be out there and doing stuff every single night and for me it's not that case mm-hmm. I like uh, I like video games yeah I like reading been reading some some books that I haven't read in a, in a while some of the autumn series mm-hmm. um I, I have some some Sanderson books on my shelf right yeah. now that are collecting dust yeah. that I'm gonna get to eventually yeah I, I think I I think it's important to sort of take that time to yourself and kind of recuperate and re-energize, you know, from time to exactly. time. Exactly. I mean, uh, I th- we we have a bit of a hiatus for like uh, our weighted dice show, mm-hmm. and like I've just been relaxing on Sundays. Nice. It's been great. Nice. It's been super good, just yeah. sort of like recharge yeah. a little bit. I, I also think it's important to kind of find a balance because I'm kind of the opposite. I'm like the 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 homebody. I'm just like no no no. I'm going to stay at home and work on my own stuff or just watch TV and play games or something. So I've been trying to force myself out more from time to time like no actually make the effort to go downtown hang out with friends um and you know go and do stuff i'm going on a hike tomorrow which is like something i haven't done in like a few months so it's good though it's good to get the air yeah absolutely so i think balance is important right definitely Mm -hmm. um one more thing i want to talk about is uh follow your passions Mm -hmm. follow your dreams uh i i like voice acting a lot yeah i like doing that a lot and uh, I actually just got a job uh, oh. doing some voice acting work. Not not like a not like a super big paid gig, but yeah. like some guys. Some guy heard me do a, a, a mock up of a esports caster, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Oh man, I love your voice. I want to have you work on this project." And I was like, "Hell yeah, I'll work on your project." That's awesome. Congratulations. So hey, thanks. It's just a small one, but, it, <laughs> but it, it, it's good to get recognition. Yeah, for sure. It's something you can put on a on a resume, right? Yeah, exactly. I've I've done this video. Mm. I've I've done this series. Um, so if you guys have like a thing that you really want to get started doing, say you want to le- really learn how to learn good, how to play guitar, or you want to learn how to dance, mm. go do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's never too late to to go and do that stuff. Yeah, like if you want to start a gaming podcast, I mean, just don't. It's too crowded in here. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to me. <laughs> it is my job. <laughs> or like even even like streaming on Twitch or doing YouTube. Yeah. Just start. The, the sooner you have content to push out, the better. Yes, do your research. Mm. Find what you want to be doing because you don't want to be doing Minecraft videos if you really hate Minecraft. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, definitely, I mean, just jump right in. Do it. And who knows? You, you might make it big. If you don't, who cares? Yeah. You, you, you tried. Mm-hmm. And that's more than anyone else can say. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so I think that is going to do it for us this week, folks. Uh, so thanks again, Chris, for hanging out it's good to have you back on the show man i missed this (laughs) i I missed our little talks yeah um so as always uh if you're listening and you want to be a part of the show uh don't forget you can send us uh emails to shelvegames at gmail.com if you have topic suggestions if you have questions if you have comments on the stuff that we've talked about uh you can send those there uh you can also hit us up on facebook or on twitter uh just search for shelved games um, and of course you can find the podcast shelvegames.com slash podcasts. And we're also on the Apple podcasts and Google play stores where you can subscribe and rate and review the show. That really helps us out. Check us out on YouTube. Uh, we post all the videos and, uh, all the other fun stuff there. The podcast gets posted there as well. Live streams are now on twitch.tv slash shelvegames. Uh, we're doing a lot more of that now over the summer as my schedule is a little bit less crazy. Uh, lots of Dota 2, lots of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Uh, I'm also going to be switching the uh, Stardew Valley and Metal Gear Solid Let's Plays to live stuff. So that'll be all on Twitch as well. 
Uh, music for the show is by Zed Ion, uh, who you can find on SoundCloud. Uh, Chris, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me primarily over on uh, twitch.tv slash galestrom. That's G-A-L-E-S-T-R-O-M, mm-hmm. where I do all of my live stream stuff. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, where I post a lot of garbage <laughs> on the daily at twitter.com forward slash the underscore galestrom, mm-hmm. where uh, I am primarily there when I'm not streaming. You can also go ahead and find our weighted dice stuff when we do stuff at uh, twitch.tv forward slash weighted dice, where we primarily do RPGs, but we are hopefully going to be expanding a little bit more into some YouTube territory nice. later on. Nice. Um, we're working on doing that, just finding some dungeon masters and players there. So if you would like to join us there, feel free to send us an email at weighteddnd at gmail.com. That's uh weighted spell correctly and then just dnd awesome so again thanks chris for hanging out and um like i said always enjoy arguing with you uh <laughs> and that's what i'm here for man and, uh, here for. again a big thank you to my friend zach uh for sitting down and chatting to me about his thesis and and some of the uh issues revolving uh queer identity and games and gaming communities that was a lot of fun so hopefully you folks enjoyed that chat um, if you enjoyed the show, feel free to share it with your friends. Uh, that really helps us out. And thanks for being with us here today. So until next time, until next week, go and grab a game off the shelf because you never know what you're going to find. Hey everyone, welcome to the Shelf Games Podcast for the week. Nope, that's going to peak. I know it. Blech. Yep. Hey everybody, welcome hey. to the Shelf Games Podcast. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> like, share, and subscribe. <laughs>